Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Taurus Data Science Podcast. My name is Jeremy, and apart from hosting the podcast, I'm also on the team at the Sharpest Minds Data Science Mentorship Program. And I'm really excited about today's episode because I've been thinking about getting today's guest on the podcast for a very long time. I'm so glad we finally made it happen. Um, he's actually in between a transition right now from uh, Berkeley, where he's wrapping up his PhD. He's working at the Center for Human Compatible AI. And he's transitioning over into DeepMind, where he'll be doing some alignment work. His name is Rohan Shah. And apart from being a very prolific researcher in, uh, in AI and AI alignment in particular, he is also the publisher of the AI Alignment Newsletter, which is a really, really great resource if you're looking to get oriented in the space to learn about some of the open problems and open questions in AI alignment. I really recommend checking it out. Uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of different things, including the philosophy of AI, the philosophy of machine learning and AI alignment, ways in which it can be accomplished, some of the challenges that exist, and we're going to explore one of the most interesting proposals I think that Rohan's come up with, uh, which is an idea about extracting human preferences from the state of the environment. So basically the idea here is that humans through their activity have encoded their preferences implicitly in their environments. We do a whole bunch of different things, different actions that reveal our preferences. And it would be great if we could have AIs look at the world and figure out what our preferences are uh, implicitly based on the state of that world. And that might be a great way to bootstrap uh, AI alignment efforts. And so we'll be talking about that proposal in depth along with a whole bunch of other things. I'm really looking forward to, uh, to the episode, so I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, here we go. Uh, Rohan, thanks so much for uh, joining us for the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me here. I'm excited. Well, I'm really excited to have you. There are so many interesting things that you've been working on in the alignment space in general. But before we tackle some of the more technical questions, there's an observation that I think anybody who's spent any time working on alignment or talking to alignment researchers is going to end up making at some point, which is that the vast majority of people in this space seem to come from the effective altruism community. And I'd love to get your take on, number one, you know, what the effective altruism community is, what, what effective altruism is, and number two, why you think there's this deep connection between uh, EA, effective altruism, and AI alignment and AI safety research. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, there's like this, the overarching idea of effective altruism, the like very, you know, easy to defend one that doesn't get into specifics is just, you know, with whatever money, time, resources, whatever you're willing to spend altruistically, you know, you should, you should try to do the most good you can with it rather than, and you should, you know, think about that. Uh, and it's pretty hard to like, you know, argue against this. Like, I don't think I've like really seen people uh, disagree with that part. Now in practice, effective altruism, the movement has like a whole bunch of additional premises that are, you know, meant to be in support of this goal, but are, you know, more controversial. I think that like a really, you know, fundamental big idea of effective altruism is that of cause prioritization. Well, many people will like say, okay, I want to have, uh, say, clean water in Africa. I will work towards that. And they'll like think about different ways in which you could like get clean water to uh, in Africa. Uh, maybe you could like try uh, sanitizing the water that's already, that people already get, or you could try building some like new uh, treatment plants in order to provide fresh flowing uh, water that's like drinkable to everyone. And they'll like, you know, think about, you know, how best can they achieve their goal of um, delivering clean water. But it's much, much, much less common for people to think, okay, well, should I work on, you know, getting clean water uh, to people in Africa or like combating racism in the US? 
mm. which of these should I put my effort into or my money into? The main premise of effective altruism is like, you can in fact do this. There are actually significant differences between causes and by thinking about it, have much more impact by selecting the right cause to work on in the first place. Um, and so it's very focused on, you know, the sort of like take weird, I take ideas seriously, actually evaluate them, figure out whether or not they are true and not whether or not they sound crazy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether or not they sound crazy does have some relation to whether or not they are true, but they are not necessarily the same. Right. Um, and I think that ties into, you know, why so many, why it's also such a hotbed for like AI safety research. The EA case for AI safety, for work on AI safety, is that AI has a good chance of being extremely influential in the next century, let's say. There is like some argument that is debatable, but it doesn't seem like you can rule it out. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like at least moderately likely that, you know, if we don't take care of how we do this, uh, we might just like the AI system uh, might take over in the sense of like all of the important decisions about the world are made by the AI system and not by humans. Um, and like one possible consequence of this is that uh, humans go extinct. You know, I'll, I'll go into this argument later, I'm sure. Uh, mm -hmm. But so yeah, you... believe this argument somewhat. And so then it becomes extremely important, to, impactful to work on. It sounds crazy, but like one of the ace to me strengths is that it separates what sounds crazy um, from what is true. It seems like really the focus is there's this extra missing step that a lot of people don't apply to their thinking when deciding what causes to contribute to, <clears throat> what to work on, what to spend their lives on. And that is the step of going really like what, what areas are going to give outsized returns on my time. Yep. And exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can really uh, think back to most of the conversations I've ever had with people about causes, about charity. And, you know, it's, it's usually focused on stuff like, what are the administrative fees associated with this charity? Oh, well, I want to donate to a place where all my dollars go to the cause, rather than asking the more fundamental question, is this cause actually going to give the best ROI from the standpoint of, you know, benefiting everyone or benefiting humanity? Um, so it's sort of interesting that that kind of thinking, a more kind of first principles approach, leads a lot of people to the area of AI alignment and AI safety. As you said, I mean, it makes sense. You've got this super high risk, high reward profile. Um, what was it that, that drew you, for example, to um, AI alignment, AI safety work in particular, rather than any of the other, I mean, I could imagine bioterrorism, I could imagine uh, all kinds of horrible things that could happen to us, but why AI alignment in particular? Yeah, um, so my, my story is kind of weird. It's maybe a classic AI story in that, you know, convinced by very weird arguments. Um, but I, you know, got into effective altruism in 2014. I heard the arguments for AI, AI risk, you know, within a year of that, probably. Um, I was deeply unconvinced by them. I... Like, I just did not buy them. Um, and so for, you know, for until 2017, I basically just didn't really engage very much with AI safety. I was also unconvinced of basically, there's this field of ethics called population ethics, um, which tries to deal with the question of how do you 
compare how good different worlds are when they have different populations of people in them. Mm. And I, we, we don't need to go into the details, but it's a very confusing area. Lots of, you know, impossibility results that say like, you know, you might want these like six very intuitive properties, but no, you can't actually have all of them at the same time. Stuff like this. So you would this would the idea here be like, you know, is a world with a hundred decently happy people better than a world with a thousand kind of, you know, decent minus epsilon happy people? Is that yes, kind of that's, calculation? That's okay. an example of a of a question that it would deal with. Yeah. So anyway, I was like thinking about this this um, question a, a lot in the summer of 2017. And eventually, you know, I was like, okay, I think I actually should put a fair amount of weight, like not certainty, certainly, but like a fair amount of weight on the view that, you know, more happy people is like, in fact, just means a better world, even if they're in the future. Um, and once you put a decent probability on that, it starts looking, you know, overwhelmingly important uh, to ensure that the future, you know, continues to exist and have happy people because it's just so big mm -hmm. relative to the present. Um, and so then I wanted to do something that was, you know, more future oriented. And I had, you know, a ton of skills in computer science and math, like basically everything you would want to work in AI alignment. I still was not very convinced of, of AI risk, but I was like, okay, you know, a bunch of smart people have like thought about this. Maybe I should like work on it for a while, see, see whether or not it makes sense. And so then I, um, and that, that's what caused me to actually switch. And, you know, so, a year later, I like started believing the arguments. Th that's so I also saw different arguments. So you were, you were led by the, so the quality of the people who were drawn to the problem more so than necessarily the, the initial arguments themselves. Like, do you, do you remember an aha moment as you were working on the stuff where you're like, well, wait a minute, like, this is actually for real. I can now see why, you know, Nick Bostrom and maybe Elias Rukowski and whoever else was talking about it back then was, uh, was on, onto something. I never really had an aha moment. I think I, I, I remember at one point I was like, huh, I guess I now believe these arguments, but it wasn't like mm. I, I, or like, I guess I now believe that AI risk is, you know, substantial and real, but I couldn't, can't point to you to, can't point to a like specific point in time where I was like, yes, now I believe it. I just sort of one day was reflecting on it and noticed, oh yeah, I used to not believe this and now I do. That's so interesting. Yeah, it seems like there's a, a bifurcation between people who maybe, you know, they, they read super intelligence or, or they read less wrong and, and they get really excited about the problem and really scared of it right off the bat, because for whatever reason, they're wired in such a way as to have that happen. And then people, yeah, who like you, it's like a slow burn and, and you ease into it. I guess this yeah. is part of the problem almost of articulating the, the problem, right? I mean, if it takes that long to get people to, uh, to think of this as a really important thing, do, do you have um, a strategy that you use when you try to explain to people like, why, why is you know, AI risk so serious? Why is the probability non-trivial um, that you think might've worked on you back then to kind of accelerate the process? Yeah, I, I should note that like, I still, you know, I'm like, not super happy with the arguments and like, super intelligence, for example. Um, and like, I would say that it's like, you know, slightly different arguments that are motivating it for me with, you know, still a fair amount of emphasis on things that were in super intelligence. 
Um, I think a lot of people won't have heard of superintelligence, by the way. So if you, if oh, you yes. want to address any, any of sure. the arguments that you raised, please feel free to kind of give that background too. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll just talk about, you know, the arguments I personally like, yeah. uh, since I can, you know, explain them better. But just for context, Superintelligence is a book by, you know, a professor at Oxford named Nick Bostrom. Um, it was published in 2014, and it was the first, like, you know, book-length treatment of, like, why AI risk is a thing that might occur and what we, uh, why we should think it might be plausible, what solutions we might... Uh, seem seem like they should be investigated and stuff like that. Um, I think for me personally, um, the argument I would give, so A, we're going to assume as a premise that we build AI systems that are intelligent, like as intelligent as a human, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, we can talk about that later, but that's a whole, other discussion. I'll just say that, you yeah. know, I think it is not, I think it is like reasonably likely um, to happen in the next century. But for now, take it as an assumption. One thing about intelligence is like, it means that you can adapt to new situations. Like you're presented with a new situation, you like learn about it and you do something and like that something is like coherent. It makes sense. So one example I give of this, of where we see this even with you know, current neural nets is um, a specific example from GPT-3. Uh, so I, I believe viewers will be familiar with GPT-3, but if uh, listeners, not viewers, but if not, um, GPT-3 is this um, language generation model that OpenAI developed and released recently. And I think I, I like one particular example, uh, which comes from uh, the post giving GPT-3 a Turing test, um, where, you know, the, the context to GPT-3 was a bunch of like questions and answers. And then GPT-3 was posed a question, um, how many bonks are in a quart? These are nonsense words. You did not mishear me. Um, and GPT-3, you know, like, in some sense, this is outside of its training distribution. It is never seen this sentence in its training, training uh, corpus, presumably. It may not have even seen the words, you know, bonk and coit ever. Um, so it's, you know, actual, pro actual distribution shift. And, you know, you're relying on some sort of generalization out of distribution. Nonetheless, I think we can all predict that GPT-3 is not going to output some random string of characters. It's going to probably say something sensible. Um, and in fact, the thing that it says is, you know, there are three bonks in a coit. Mm. Why three? I have no idea. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like sensible in some sense. It like produced an answer that like sounds like English. And, and we've um, all been there to some degree if we write exams or whatever. How, yeah. We're asked how many bunks are in a coit. We haven't done our studying and hey, there are three bunks in a coit. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, so like in some sense, you know, GPT-3 did generalize. It like generalized the way a student taking a test would. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the original post, this was taken as evidence of like GPT-3 not actually being reasonable uh, because it doesn't, doesn't know how to say, you know, this question is nonsense. Uh, but, you know, then a follow-up post was like, actually, you totally can get GPT-3 to do that. If you like tell uh, GPT-3 that, you know, 
if in the context you say whenever it sees a nonsense question, the AI responds, yo, be real. Then mm. when it's asked how many bonks are in a quote, it says, yo, be real. So, you know, it's got the ability to tell that this is nonsense. It just, you know, turned out that it generalized in a way where it like was more like a, a test taker and yeah. less like, you know, uh, somebody in conversation. Did we know that ahead of time? No, we did not. Um, and I think this is like, we had to actually, you know, run GPT-3 in order to, to figure this out. Right. I think AI risk is basically like this, but like, you know, supercharged where your AI system, if it is human level intelligent, it's like definitely going to be deployed in new areas, in new situations that you have, that we haven't seen before. Um, and we just don't really have a compelling reason to believe that it will continue to do the thing we were training it to do, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to something else. Like, you know, in GPT-3, what were we training it to do? Well, on the training data set, at least, we were training it to do whatever a human would write in that context. But like, when you see there are three bunks in a, uh, sorry, how many bunks are in a quote? what would a human do in that circumstance? Yeah. I don't know, it's not really well-defined. And you know, GPT-3 did something sensible, but like, it's not, I, I don't think you could reasonably say that it was, a, you know, doing what we trained it to do. It just did something that was coherent. And similarly, if you've got, you know, AI systems that are human level intelligent or more, uh, taking like super impactful actions upon the world. And they're put in these new situations where like, there's not really a fact of the matter about how they will generalize, then they might, you know, take actions that have a high impact on the world that aren't what we want. And then, you know, as a maybe intuition pump for why this could be really, really bad, like human extinction level bad, you know, one particular kind of distribution shift is, you know, you go from the training setting where, you know, humans have more power than the AI and can turn off the AI to like, the setting where the AI is sufficiently intelligent and sufficiently widely deployed that no human can like, an, or humanity as a whole cannot like turn it off in that situation. You know, that's a new situation. The mm -hmm. AI has never been in a situation where it, where it had this sort of power before. Will it use it in some way that, will, will it generalize in some different, some way that was different from what we expected during training? We don't really have a reason to, to say, no, it won't do that. Is there an analogy you think here with, uh, with child rearing? I mean, I, I'm just thinking of here intergenerational human propagation where, you know, our ancestors in the 1600s, uh, at least in the West, I'm sure would be absolutely disgusted by our vile ways today, uh, the way that we deal with sex, the way we communicate to our elders, the way that we manage our institutions and so on. All, all our hierarchies are just completely different and in many ways orthogonal to the moral frameworks that were applied, you know, in, in the Middle Ages um, mm -hmm. or in the early Renaissance. I guess there is a difference here in the sense that at least we are still running on the same fundamental hardware or something very similar. Maybe yep. that ensures a minimum level of alignment, but it, it, does this analogy break apart in some way? I think that's a pretty good intuition pump. Um, like there are some ways that the analogy breaks. Like for example, um, you know, well, the analogy doesn't break so much as like, I would like, you know, say, put a little bit less weight on it for these reasons. Like one is, you know, in child rearing, you, you have some influence over children, but you don't get to like, you know, 
do a full training process where you give them gradients for every like single time step right. of action that they ever do. So you might hope that like, you know, within a, given that you can have way, way, way more selection pressure on AI systems, you would be able to avoid this problem. But, but yes, I think that that is, you know, the same fundamental dynamic that I'm pointing at. You know, you get to do some amount of, you have some amount of influence over, you know, these agents, but, you know, those agents then like encounter new situations and they do something in those situations and you didn't think about those situations ahead of time and you didn't train them to, to do the right thing. Then I definitely buy um, the, the idea here that, you know, this AI risk, this is really significant risk and the stakes are very high. Um, when it comes to the solutions or the strategies that you think are most promising, you yourself are specialized, obviously, in, well, in one category, everybody has to be in one, one sub, <laughs> subspace within the alignment uh, problem domain. Um, what is the, the area that you've decided to focus on? And, and why do you think that that sort of is, is most deserving of attention at this point? The story that I've told you so far is one of generalization. Like the, the, main, the main issue is, you know, we don't know how to generalize and, you know, plausibly you could get AI systems that are like single-mindedly pursuing power. And that's sort of similar to the super intelligence story. And those could cause human extinction. But like the, the sort of fundamental mechanism is like bad generalization or generalization that's like you, you, your capabilities generalize, you do something coherent and high impact, but you're, the objective that you're, or the thing you're trying to do doesn't generalize relative to like what humans wanted. And so like a lot of the things I'm most excited about are somehow generalization uh, related. So like one thing that I'm interested in is like, can we like get a better understanding of empirically, how do neural nets tend to generalize? Can we say anything about this? There's a lot of theory that tries to explain why neural nets have like as good generalization power as they do. Um, um, you know, it can't be explained by statistical learning theory because neural nets can memorize random noise, but nonetheless seem to generalize reasonably well on, you know, when, it, when the labels are not random noise. And, and sorry, do you mind explaining statistical learning theory as a reference? I'm actually not so sure that I, I can to the, uh, the connection. Um, so statistical learning theory is like a branch of machine learning theory that, you know, tries to do several things, but among other things, try to prove that if we train a machine learning model on, you know, such and such training data with such and such properties, then we know that it will generalize in such and such way. Mm. Um, and it like proves theorems about this. And sort of importantly, most approaches right now focus on making assumptions about your model, your hypothesis class. These assumptions usually like preclude the ability to overfit to an arbitrary, arbitrary size data set. Because if you could, then you like can't really say anything about generalization. Mm. But the fact of the matter is neural nets really can just yeah. actually overfit to any data set. They can memorize labels that are literal random noise. Um, and so these assumptions just don't apply to neural nets. Um, so I, the thing I'm excited about is like, can we talk about like assumptions on the data set rather than just the model 
Mm. And using, you know, if we think about assumptions on the data set and assumptions on the model, can we then say something about how neural nets tend to generalize? This is like a super vague, not fleshed out hope that I have not really started working on, nor to my knowledge has anyone else. You know, there's just so many empirical things about neural nets that are so deeply confusing to me, like deep double descent. I don't get it. It's an empirical phenomenon. If you don't know it, you can look it up. It's probably not that worth me going into. Just so confusing. I don't know why it happens. It makes no sense to me. And I will like want to know why. And like, I think that if we like understood things like this, we could start, we, we might be able to start making statements about how neural nets tend to generalize. And like, maybe that translates into things we can say about safety. That's interesting. Um, the generalization story seems to be, um, seems to be like one ingredient of the problem, of course. And then the, like the, the other ingredient, which, I mean, there's some overlap, but it does seem like they have distinct um, components, is this challenge of like telling machines what, what human preferences even are. Like, yep. you know, our, our ability to, to tell each other what we want out of life is already so limited. And it's something that, I mean, at least I personally find, find somewhat, somewhat jarring as a, as a prospect and having to actually not only uh, express our preference, but quantify them and, and etch them into some kind of loss function that we then feed to a, to a model. Um, you've done a lot of interesting work on this. And actually there's one of your papers I wanted to talk about. We discussed this before we started recording and I was so glad to hear that it was also the one that you thought was the most interesting. <laughs> so we have compatible views at least on that. But it was this idea of, um, well, the paper's title is Preferences Implicit in the State of the World. And uh, I guess first I wanted to ask a, a question to set the scene a little bit. So what is preference learning? What is that, that concept? Yeah. So this is actually the next thing I was going to say I was excited by. Um, oh, great. Which is, you know, you know I've, I've talked about generalization, but like before you get to generalization, you want to train on the right thing in the first place. Uh, that seems like a good, you know, starting point for your AI yeah. system. If you don't have that, you're probably host. Um, and so, you know, lots of ink has been spilled on like how it's actually very difficult to specify what you want, um, you know, by writing a program or an equation that just captures it in a number, which is, you know, how deep reinforcement learning or any, any deep learning system works. Um, but it's, you know, most commonly associated with deep reinforcement learning. And so the idea of preference learning is, you know, rather than having to specify what you want via writing down an equation, you specify it by some like more and easier to some easier method. Like for example, you could like look at two trajectories um, in, for, in a reinforcement learning setting. You can look at two behaviors that the agent took and you can say, ah, yes, the left one, that one was better. And that's, you know, giving the agent some feedback about what it should be doing. It's not, you know, trying to write down an equation that captures the ideal behavior in every possible scenario. Mm -hmm. It's just saying, you know, out of these two, which one is better? And so you, you would imagine that that's, you know, easier for humans to do and more likely to be correct. Um, and so this, this preference learning field, I sort of think of it as like the field of how do we design mechanisms for humans to give feedback to an AI system such that, you know, humans, such that we can like actually give feedback that incentivizes the behaviors we actually want. And, you know, we don't make uh, as many mistakes in specification as we do with reward functions. 
So what I, what I find really exciting about that aspect of it too is like there's this well-known difference in humans between um, like expressed uh, desires and revealed desires or expressed intent and revealed intent. Like, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll say, I want to, I want to work out for three hours today. I want to do a bunch of coding and I want to like just have a, a vegan, a bunch of vegan meals uh, for the next month. And then mm -hmm. if you check in on me next month, uh, I will not have done all of those things. I won't have done yep. nearly all those things. And the question is like, well, which me is me? I mean, am I, am I the aspirational self that said, hey, I would love to be that person? Or am I the, the, the jackass who actually sat on his couch and watched Netflix the entire time? Um, th this seems to really scratch that itch in the sense that it probes our revealed preferences. For better or for worse, I guess that could also be a failure mode. Um, is, is that something that, um, that you see as, as valuable in this approach? Yeah. Um, I think you want to use, you know, both sources of information and not, not do either one. Um, so actually, let me, let me take a step back and distinguish between two different things you could be trying to do. Um, so there's like one thing where you're trying to learn what humans value, which is the sort of thing that you're talking about. And there's another framing where you're just like, I want my AI system to do such and such task. And I want to train it to do that. But like, I can't write down a reward function for that task. Um, I'm actually more interested in the latter, honestly. But the former is also something I've, you know, spent a lot of time on and I'm excited by. Um, so, you know, right now we're talking about the former. Um, Can I ask a naive question? I mean, I think I understand what the difference is, but I just want to want to put it to you to, to tackle it explicitly. What is, so what is the difference between those two things? Yeah. So like one thing is like, you know, maybe I want my AI system to like clean, to like vacuum my floors um, or something. And like, you know, the task of vacuuming my floors is not well specified, is not like well specified just by the, you know, that sentence. Uh, anyone who has a Roomba can probably tell you stories of the Roomba being super dumb. Um, and like some of those are just the room about not being intelligent enough, but some are also just like the task is not super well specified. Like, you know, um, should the agent, you know, vacuum underneath a Christmas tree where there's like, you know, um, a bunch of needles that might ruin their vacuum? Who knows? Um, if there's like some like random shiny button on the floor, should it be vacuumed up or just left alone? Uh, because like maybe that button's important. What sorts of things, you know, should the cat ever be vacuumed? Like, you know, the right. cat has a lot of hair that gets gets everywhere. If you vacuum the cat, that seems like it would make your house cleaner. There's like lots of lots of ambiguity here. I wouldn't really say that these are like human values. Like teaching a Roomba how to vacuum does not does not seem to be the same thing as like you know teaching the Roomba about human values. Um, for one thing, like, you just can't really talk that much about revealed preferences here because, you know, you know, I don't vacuum my, my house um, very often. Um, I, you know, if an AI system were going to, to vacuum, I probably would, I might have it vacuum more often, but, you know. Would you say this is like a, it's like a narrow application of, of human preferences? Like, it almost seems like the distinction between, you know, narrow AI and AGI somehow maps onto this. Yeah, and I think like, I think I agree with that. And I would say like, you know, but in this sense, like everything is narrow AI. You just like get narrow AI that becomes right. more and more general. At some point we decide to stop calling it narrow AI yeah. and start to call it AGI because of how broad it has become. 
But I, I like the idea of like, you know, you start with something that, you know, can be applied to systems today mm -hmm. and like you just scale it up. It just becomes more and more capable, more and more general, but it's always the same technique. And like, you know, eventually the systems that we create with it, we would label them as AGI or human level intelligent or super intelligent. But like, you know, it's the same technique. It's the same sort of general principle. So that, that, that's sort of why I'm more excited by, by this framing of the problem rather than the human values framing. But, yeah, you know, tangible. as you get to like more general systems, it sort of merges in with the human values. Like, you know, once you get AI systems that are like designing government policies or something, like whatever feedback you're giving them, it better teach them about human values. Yeah. And hopefully, I guess we start to do that at higher and higher levels of abstraction, as you say, as we sort of climb yep. that ladder, uh, we, we fill in the, the convolutional filters in, in a sense as we, as we go up. Um, <laughs> yes, exactly. You had asked a question about revealed preferences versus um, spoken preferences or expressed preferences. And I think like, yes, this is an important distinction. Um, I am like, you know, I definitely am have, want any method that we propose to like not be dependent on one or the other, but to instead be like mm -hmm. using both. Um, and there will be conflicts. I'm mostly hoping that, you know, we can just sort of like have AI systems that like just set aside the conflicts and do things that are like, um, that are robustly good and like they're robustly good according to either set. Mm -hmm. um, probably, you know, you'll have to have some amount of conflict resolution mechanism, but like, you know, humans already have to do this in some sense. So it's like, seems plausible that we could do it. Um, but, but yeah, I think it is, you know, good, a, a like very nice aspect of this is that you don't have to commit, commit yourself to like defining the behavior upfront in every possible situation. We just don't know this. Like right. our values are not well-defined enough, honestly, for that to be right. We like, our values are constantly in the process of being updated as we encounter new situations. Like, you know, right now we, we talk about democracy, one vote per person. You know, if someday in the, you know, transhumanist future, um, if someday it becomes possible to just like, you know, make copies of people, I, I think we would pretty quickly uh, no longer want to have one vote per person. Um, yeah. Because otherwise you can just, you know, pay to have anyone elected if you are sufficiently rich. Or I guess even in, in just in the limit of better information about brain states, we could say, well, you know, sure, this policy makes the majority of people happier, but the people it makes more unhappy, I mean, look at that, that horrible dopamine cycle, like those people are really taking a big hit and you can yep. kind of like weight those responses, yeah. Yep, yeah, that is, you could definitely optimize better for social welfare potentially, and maybe then you don't want to just have one vote per person. Right, now, um, I guess this brings us back to preferences implicit in the state of the world. There are things yes. presumably about the structure of the world that reveal our, I guess this is revealed preferences mostly, right? What we've actually yes. done. Yep. This is definitely a revealed preferences method. Um, and I think like an important aspect of this is like, you know, people will, I think like the, one of the reasons I'm especially excited about this, which I want to say as a prelude is that like, it's not trying to do the hard things. Like, when people think about value learning, they think about, ah, should a self-driving car, like, you know, uh, if it's like, has a choice between running into two passengers or like killing the driver, what should it do? And, you know, those are hard ethical questions. 
I'm like, you know, less interested in them. I want to, you know, start with, can we get an AI system that knows that like reliably, you know, knows that it should not kill humans. If there's, you know, if there's, if there are two options where, you know, yeah. Anyway, like the basic stuff that we all agree on um, or nearly all agree on. Um, And so like this, I think like looking at the state of the world is a good way to like um, see this. And the, the basic intuition here is that, you know, we've been acting in the world for so long. We have preferences. We've been like rearranging the world um, to, to fit the way that, you know, we want the world to be. And so as a result, you can sort of like invert that process to figure out what things we probably want. And so I, there's this nice toy example that illustrates this. Like, suppose, you know, there's a room and in the middle of the room, there is this breakable vase. And vases, once they're broken, they can never be repaired. Um, We assume that the AI knows this. We're going to assume that the AI knows all like empirical facts. It knows how the world works. It knows, you know, what actions the human can take. It knows what actions it itself can take. It knows like what states of the world are possible, but it doesn't know anything about like the reward function or which is, you know, the equivalent of human values. So it knows empirical facts. Um, it knows that this base, once broken, cannot be fixed. We're, we're going to leave aside glue and, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it then looks at the fact that, you know, it sees, it, it like is deployed in this room and it sees that, you know, it's human who I'll call Alice um, is like, you know, has walked, is in the room and the vase is unbroken. And so then now you can like pose hypothetical questions like, all right, well, what would I have expected to see if Alice wanted to break the vase? Mm-hmm. Well, I would have seen a broken vase. Yeah. What would I have expected to see if Alice didn't care about the vase? Well, you know, probably, you know, at some point, you know, the most efficient way would have been to just walk, walk through the room while knocking over the vase. And so probably in that case, also, I would have seen a broken vase. You know, what would I expect to see if Alice did not want the brace to be, or actively wanted the vase to not be broken. Um, in that case, I, you know, actually see an unbroken vase probably. And since I actually see an unbroken vase, that tells me that, you know, of those three situations, only the last one seems consistent with my observations. And so probably Alice did not want to break the vase. And so you can infer this fact about that, you know, Alice doesn't want to make break the vase just by looking at the state of the world and seeing that the base is not broken. It um, seems like there's a, a, a very deep connection here to just like the second law of thermodynamics and just the universe has like, there's so many more ways to end up in a situation where you have a broken base, that the mere fact that there isn't a broken base is, is a huge piece of information. Yes. Like it, it's the, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it is that, yeah. Like basically I, I to the extent that- to add. <laughs> well, it just strikes me as like, this is like the, the physicist instinct in me, but the, um, to the extent that the world looks any different from what we would expect with, you know, pure thermodynamic randomness, the assumption here is those differences come from human preferences, right? I mean, it, would that be a fair way to characterize the... Uh... Yep, that's right. And, and does that imply certain failure modes then? Because I guess we encode information in, in our environment, I guess this is back to the revealed preferences thing, but like implicitly... Um, you know, I, I've, I've hard coded my 
my, my brain state into my apartment, every arrangement of things, any kind of like uh, any misogyny, any racism, any foot fetishes that I might have, like the, the whole laundry list of weird quirks that may or may not be part of my personality are in, implicitly encoded in, in the room. Um, yes. Is there, like, is this part of the, the risk of applying a technique like this? Yeah, so, I mean, in theory, if you, if you, <laughs> you know, supercharge this method, I, it would, right. yeah, it's just going to get everything that is a revealed preference, and there are, well, I don't know that it gets everything, but, like, to a first approximate, approximation, it gets your real, revealed preferences. I'm sure there are some that it does not get. Um, and sometimes you just don't like your revealed preferences and you think they, are, they should be different. Like, you know, um, you have a revealed preference. Many people have a revealed preference to procrastinate that they probably do not, in fact, endorse. Right. Um, and they wouldn't want, you know, their AI system uh, giving them more and more addictive material so that they can procrastinate better. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, is plausibly something that could happen. Um, I would have to think significantly harder about how, how exactly concretely that could happen, but I, I could believe that that would be an effect. Similarly, you know, the technique, as I've explained it so far, assumes that there is only one human in the world mm. and things get a lot more complicated if there are multiple humans and I have just like, you know, ignored that case so far um, i mean it's it's what you need to get the thing off the ground right i mean yeah <laughs> and yeah is, is there um because like in this context i guess there I, I imagine at least there's another sort of risk mode which is you know if by pure chance um like let's say in the example with with the vase let's say that the uh, the human actually doesn't care about the vase but just happens in in her demonstration to uh, to have avoided the vase. Is there the risk that, I, I guess this is always a risk in machine learning. This is, it sounds like just a, a case of added distribution sampling, um, like that yep. you learn that, okay. Yeah, that's right. So if you, so there is, you know, if the vase is like kept in an inconspicuous out of the way location, mm. where it's like not actually that likely that um, Alice would have broken the vase in the course of moving around the room. We actually have this in the paper. We show that like in that sort of an environment, you actually don't learn anything significant about the base. You're just like, eh, maybe she wanted, she, she probably didn't want it broken. You, you, right. you infer that like she did not, you know, deeply desire for the base to be broken, but you don't infer anything stronger than that. Um, you're like uncertain between whether it's, you know, uh, negative versus whether it's like bad to break bases rather versus just like, eh, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's more like, you know, if there were efficiency gains to be had by breaking the base, uh, right. then you infer, and you observe that actually the base wasn't broken, uh, then you infer that it's bad to break bases. Uh, you know, it's still possible that humans, you know, we're not perfect, optimal people. Uh, we might like not pick up an efficiency gain. Um, yeah. And so we like uh, might, you know, go around a base, even though it would be faster to go to the base, even if we didn't care about the base. And then, yeah, this method would make an incorrect inference. In general, there's, in preference learning, there's a big tension between like, you know, you're assuming that humans do the things that they, they that right. 
the things that the humans do reflect what they want. And like, not always true. Right. And sometimes just for reasons of like pure stupidity as well, I guess. Like, yeah, we may want a thing, just not know how to make it happen. Yep, exactly. That is a big challenge in preference learning. And I, you know, people have tried to tackle it, including me, actually. But I wouldn't say that and there's been like super substantial progress on separating, you know, stupidity from uh, things you actually wanted. I think we'd end up solving a lot of other problems incidentally if we could do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, there was, there was one more aspect I wanted to ask you about with respect to the paper. The role of, of time horizons or the role that time horizons play in the paper is I think just really interesting because there's certain assumptions that the, the robot makes or the AI makes about like what is the time horizon that the human has in mind for this action that like if, if those assumptions about that time horizon shift, you start to see different behavior. I, I just love to hear you expand on that and kind of describe that setting a little bit. I think the, the, the main takeaway from that I think I would have about time horizons is like, if you assume a short time horizon, then, you know, cases where the state hasn't, hasn't been fully optimized are much more excusable uh, because, you know, the human just hasn't had enough time to fully optimize the state towards uh, what would be optimal for them. And, and, and sorry, so you can, maybe I should just, I should fill in that gap. I realize it was a little ambiguous, but um, by time horizon, I guess we're talking here about the amount of time that the, the human would have to say, go from one point in the room to a, a desired endpoint, right? To complete yeah, it. it's, it's like the amount of time that the robot assumes the human has been acting in the environment before the robot showed up. In the room case, it's like, um, you know, the robot is deployed and sees an intact base and it's like, ah, yes, the human has been walking around this room for an hour. Right. And if, like that. if you've been walking around the room for like a full hour and the vase is still there, you can then assume that the vase is probably pretty important. To... Yeah, something along those lines. Exactly. The, the, the like actual setting in the paper is slightly different, but um, that's, that's the right intuition. Um, and yeah, and so uh, this isn't il illustrated best with like the vase example, but like imagine you're trying to build a house of cards. This is another example where like the state of the world is really very informative about your preferences. House mm. of cards are like super, super not entropic. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can infer a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, the more specific the arrangement, I guess, the more, which is interesting because that's exactly what's, I guess, so, so challenging about just preserving humanity in general. There's, there's like almost a, a philosophically conservative streak to this approach in the sense that we're assuming that, you know, we've gotten to somewhere that's worth preserving because we've encoded so much of ourselves, so much of what's good about us already in the environment. And it almost seems like, like what I love about this, this time horizon stuff is the, the political philosophy behind it. It almost gives you a dial that you can tune from the kind of progressive to the conservative end of the spectrum, just yeah. by assuming right, different time horizons. It, like if you assume that we just got here and it's sort of blank slate, then hey, we can try anything. We don't really, we're not really certain about what humans want in this environment. Yeah. Conversely, right, yeah. That's true. I'd never actually thought of it that way, but, but you're right. That is, that is basically what it is. Like another way of thinking about it is like, you know, I, I, the way I actually like got to this point to, to the point of writing this paper was like asking myself, you know, 
why is it that we privilege the do nothing action? Like, you know, yes. we'll say that like the safe action is to do nothing. Why? It's just an action. And right. you know, this is, this is an answer. This is like, we've already optimized the environment. Random actions are probably, you know, so, so the like current state is like, you know, high on our preference ranking. Random actions take us out of that state into some random other state. So, you know, probably an expectation they go lower in our ranking, whereas the do nothing action preserves it. And so it's good. And, you know, the longer the time horizon, the, the stronger the, ex uh, the stronger you want to like do nothing as a default. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that in the paper actually as a, almost a derivation of that intuition, which is just so, it's so beautiful when you can see it kind of laid out like that. I know. It's, it, it's, it's like, a, so yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, in a way, it, it makes me think of like, you know, so many arguments uh, among and between people of different political stripes could be so much easier if we applied toy models like this, where you can say, well, hey, you know, th there is value to the conservative, there's value to the progressive. It, you know, we end up in a dystopia either way, and here's the parameter we can tune to see how dystopic <laughs> things get one way or the other, <laughs> depending on how much we value things. Uh, yeah, I, anyway, I, I love the, the, the work, and I thought it was, anyway, just, I, again, one of these sort of aha moments for anybody who was interested in the intersection between kind of philosophy, moral philosophy, and then an AI. It's just, anyway, just such a, a cool piece of work. Yeah, thanks. I, I like it for basically the same reasons. Sweet, well, I'm glad, glad we have uh, compatible aesthetics then. Uh, awesome. Well, I, I think um, we're, we're covered a lot of the bases here, but did, was there anything else you wanted to, to talk about? I mean, one thing I, I do wanna make sure we get to is um, a reference to the alignment uh, newsletter that you put out. I think everybody should check that out especially if you're looking to get into the space, Rohan puts out this amazing newsletter um, and you can get it anyway. We'll link to it on uh, the, the um, blog post that'll come with the podcast, but do you, do you have any social media links or things like that that you want to share? Um, I think the alignment newsletter is like the best way to get, you know, my current thinking on things. If you're new to the space, I probably, you know, recommend other things. Um, so specific writing of mine, I like that, that I like as more introductory. It's not exactly introductory, but more timeless material. Um, on the alignment forum, there is a sequence called a sequence of blog posts called the value learning sequence that I wrote. Um, I like that as a good introduction. Um, also, there's also like um, two, there are two other recommended sequences on that forum that I also recommend that I also think are pretty great. Um, in terms of social media, I have a Twitter. It's Rohan M. Shah, but like, you know, mostly it just sends out the alignment newsletter links. People can also feel free to email me. Uh, my email's on my website. Um, I can't guarantee that I will give, send you a response because I do actually get a lot of email. Um, but I, I think I like have a fairly high response rate. Yeah, well, I, I, can, I can vouch for that at my end. Uh, this was, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for, for making the time, really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward actually to, uh, to putting this out. And also um, good luck with uh, DeepMind because you're heading over there in a couple of, couple of days really, right? Yeah, I'm heading there on Monday. It's, it's for two more business days. All right, yeah. Enjoy the long weekend such as it is. <laughs> cool, thanks. Awesome, thanks so much, Rohan.